0: Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science.
1: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Karen Arndt from the University of Pittsburgh on the show. Uh, Karen Priest, let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Um, You received your PhD in 1988 with Michael Chamberlain at the University of California at Berkeley. You then performed your postdoc studies with Fred Winston at Harvard's Medical School. And you joined the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh in 1994. And you are basically still there today. Um, The first question I always like to ask guests of the show is, how did, did your interest in the small things in biology start some people are fascinated by the big things like the universe um, and things like that. However, for you, it's the small things in molecular biology. So how did that come?
2: Um, yes, I mean, my interest in in biology in, in general, I would say, had a lot to do with my somewhat rural upbringing in Pennsylvania. And um, I really got turned on to biology by, you know, a high school teacher that I had um, who was you know, just made the topic come alive. Um, and so from there, I went to um, Penn State University, which is a huge university in the middle of our state. And I gravitated toward biochemistry, partly because I was more interested and have always been interested in how things work and the mechanisms behind how the molecules work and uh, all the interactions. So, um I think just sort of growing up in an area where I was outdoors a lot, I had a father who was very interested in in how things worked, um, and and then having this high school teacher that just really made that topic come alive, kind of steered me in the direction that I took.
1: And um, after your interest in biology, was it clear for you that you wanted to pursue an acad- academic career?
2: You know, not always. Um, I, I, I've always been a person who really likes to work hard and study a lot and, and think about things. And so it was really fun to go to graduate school. And I loved everything about my experience at UC Berkeley. Um, the Chamberlain Lab was a really, um, it, it was a great place to receive training. We really thought deeply about everything we were working on. And back in those days, I was working on bacterial transcription regulation, elongation and termination. Um, which kind of rooted my current interests in those problems. But, um, you know, being in the Bay Area and there were a lot of opportunities and, you know, there's a lot of biotechnology coming about in those days as well. So I thought about that as an option. Um, But I had some long, hard talks with my Ph.D. advisor, Mike Chamberlain, who um, was a strong advocate of his students. Um, Something also I feel like I've taken with me is is the, the desire to run a lab filled with students and all their energy. And he sat down with all of us and really thought hard about what we were good at and, and, you know, I think really steered me a little bit more towards academic science because, you know, I think he just sort of felt I had a curiosity I I was not going to be totally satisfied with at those early days in some of the biotech companies. Those, of course, changed. But um, back in those days, it was sort of a binary decision. So, um, yeah, it was that's, I mean, I really did think about it, but I, I said I had this very active mentor and we sat down and talked about, you know, what I like to do. Um, and then that steered me to an academic postdoc at Harvard Medical School.
1: So let's come to your science that centers around transcription elongation control by the puf one complex. Um, through the course of your career, you studied puf one intensively. Um, how did you get interested in this protein?
2: Well, you know, through a genetic route, actually. So my my PhD studies were all biochemical um, nature. And so when I chose my postdoc with Fred Winston, I wanted to move into a genetic model organism and, and into eukaryotic cells. So it was sort of a natural progression to go from bacteria to yeast. And so when I joined, it was interesting, when I joined the Winston lab, it was really within months of a major discovery in that lab that one of the genes that um, Fred Winston had identified SPT-15 encoded Tata binding protein. It's an incredibly exciting time um, to walk into that lab and know that we had in our hands the gene for TBP. I mean, that was... It was just very early days of understanding the, the, the general transcription factors, and we had mutants, and that was exciting um, because Fred had approached this from a genetic route. So I had mutants um, in TBP, and I would say 95% of my activity in that lab um, was devoted to understanding how to binding protein and how it bound DNA, the effects of mutations in vitro and in vivo. Coming from a biochemical background, I was setting up in vitro transcription assays in the lab, and... Uh, DNA binding experiments and, and things like that. So, how did I get into the path complex is a little twisted because, um, you know, one of the things that I learned from Fred and I continue to think about in my own lab is that as long as you do genetics, you'll have something to work on. And so, Fred was always a proponent of having um, a genetic project ongoing. Um, you know, it was not that hard to do genetics in terms of, you know, what you need to do per day to, you know, deal with the cells. So many of us had a couple genetic screens going on while we might be doing biochemistry as well. So I had a of binding protein mutant that I was focusing on, actually quite a few, but, um, you know, it had a mutant phenotype um, that allowed us to look for genetic suppressors. And actually it was a graduate student in the lab, David Eisenman, who started the screen, basically took some of the TBP mutants and looked for genetic suppressors and Dave and I worked together and there was a colony on a plate. Um, You know, we characterized these colonies and it ended up being um, a gene, a novel gene called RTF1. And I named it RTF1 for restores TBP function because it was a suppressor of a TBP mutant. And now we know going back and I can come up with an explanation as to why you would get an elongation factor as a suppressor of a TBP mutant. But that's where it all began as sort of on the back of the bench, a suppressor screen that we were, you know, grad student and I were kind of working on together while we were doing other things. And that was RTF1. And RTF1 turns out to be uh, an important subunit in the path one complex. And I brought that with me to my lab at the university of Pittsburgh, um, because Fred was incredibly generous and said, you can take anything you want with you. So I brought that colony and um, the gene, I had to sequence the gene myself. It was before the genome sequence um, and uh, have worked on it sort of ever since.
1: And yeah, the first thing you did was uh, characterize the function, obviously, <laughs> of PATH1. Um, and this started with a 2002 EMBO journal paper, uh, where you were part of a team that looked at the association of PATH1 with transcription elongation factors in vivo. Um, so what did you find there?
2: Right. So I had this gene, RTF1, and um, one of the things we wanted to know, actually, there were sort of two branches we were doing. One was biochemical, purifying it, and then asking what other proteins co-purified with it. And we did that work in collaboration with Grant Hartzog's lab. Um, And in that paper, we show that RTF1 is a member of this five-subunit complex um, that we now in uh, call the PATH1 complex. Um, sort of at the same time, Judith Janing's lab was also working on the complex. She's the first to identify the PATH1 gene and came from it from those directions. My lab does genetics a lot. So we also um, carried out a synthetic lethal mutant screen. So basically, starting with an RTF1 mutation um, in an unbiased way, identify mutations that cause lethality together with an RTF1 mutation, um, RTF1 nulls are viable. So um, that's a synthetic lethal screen. We did that screen and what we landed on there was a whole host of elongation related factors. So that to me was actually one of the more important discoveries because it showed us that this was an elongation factor. Remember I got it as a TBP suppressor um, in a screen where the phenotype makes sense for where it could be an elongation factor. So identifying it as a complex uh, in that EMBO paper was actually, um, I think, a a significant advance. um, And you
1: said it has five subunits. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. In in, in Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the five subunits, um, PATH1, CTR9, CDC73, LEO1, and RTF1 seem to be together in a fairly solid complex. Um, I I should say in metazoans, um, several groups have, have shown that the RTF1 subunit, um, actually, seems to be more dissociable, um, and so, um, in fact, you know, some people, including Patrick Kramer, has defined the path complex, um, and as as sort of not having Rtf one, but they can add Rtf one into it um, and see the full group together in structures and biochemical assays.
1: So this means Rtf one might be interchangeable.
2: Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. I, I the, how. How it, how its regulation and, and association with the other subunits in mammalian cells, I think, is a really open question. Um, it has important functions in histone modifications that need to be carried out. So I think that will be interesting to see uh, as people get more into it in mammalian cells.
1: You then followed up the story by looking at interactions of chromatin remodeling factors on transcription elongation, namely um, CHAT1. Um, Can you talk about how chromatin structure influences transcriptional elongation uh, in general and specifically regarding CHD1?
2: Yeah, so as as you know, there's quite a few chromatin remodeling factors um, in in all eukaryotic cells. Um, There are multiple families of them, and um, CHD1 um, is... What we demonstrated in that work is that CHD1 is a remodeling factor that seems to be mostly working on gene bodies, so during transcription elongation. That is not the only one that's been um, argued to play a role in controlling nucleosome structure across gene bodies. So as RNA polymerase 2 moves across the gene body, of course, nucleosomes get disrupted and and they need to be managed. They need to be disrupted and reassembled. And ultimately, their spacing needs to be controlled. And CHD1 seems to be, um, along with some ice, um, sub proteins is important for getting that spacing just right of gene body nucleosomes. Um, And so that's important because, um, as many groups have shown, um, when you lack those remodeling factors that that give you back proper spacing of nucleosomes, when those are missing, um, you start opening up areas of the genome um, that are otherwise protected by nucleosomes. And that opening, that, that availability of those sequences leads to downstream consequences, such as initiation of transcription in the middle of gene bodies, something called cryptic initiation. Um, that is very detrimental to life and organisms. They're very sick when you have a high level of that. Um, and so, CHD1's ability to get to, to the to the proper place, which is gene bodies and control spacing, um, is really important sort of for genome integrity.
1: So, how does then puf one play in, into this, also in combination with Chat one because Puff1 is obviously what we are talking about.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the way we we landed on our interests in that remodeling factor um, came about from a yeast-to-hybrid screen. So when we identified RTF1, we kind of threw the book at it. You know, we tried everything that we could um, sort of think of, including biochemistry to identify the complex, uh, synthetic lethality screens to identify function, um, and then two hybrid screens to also identify interactors, maybe some that are not so stably associated. So using a yeast two hybrid screen with RTF1, we identified um, this remodeling factor, CHD1, and um, that's what that's how we got connected to it. And I think CHD1 at the time was known, it was certainly known to be an important remodeling factor, but I think its, its home was unclear like, that, that where was it functioning in the genome. Of course, there was a lot of focus on promoters. And so, um, you know, having it interact with the PATH1 complex and, and knowing the PATH1 complex at this point was traveling on gene bodies, gave CHD1 a home uh, on gene bodies. And so that's sort of how we got into all of that. You know, so what's interesting and unclear still, and something we're still working on, um, is, is how this might be different in yeast versus mammalian cells. Um, so it's pretty well known that in mammalian cells, the same remodeling factor um, has a pocket that allows it to bind to histone H3, that's trimethylated on lysine 4. So H3K4 trimethylation is important, therefore, for bringing CHD1 or maybe um, maintaining it on gene bodies. That pocket is um, absent from yeast CHD1. It doesn't seem to be able to accommodate K4 trimethylation. Um, and so how CHD1 is brought to yeast genes, um, I think, is solved in, in some part, at least, from its interaction with the PATH1 complex. We're trying, in a collaboration we have with a, another group in my department, Sarah Hayner's lab, we're trying to investigate a bit more about that connection in mammalian cells. In other words, is there a connection between PAF complex and CHD1 there?
1: So another function of PAF one is to modify histones. Um, namely, there is H2B ubiquitinylation and H3 methylation. Um, this was investigated in almost a handful of papers. <laughs> Can you uh, talk about the function of Path one in modifying histones, so modifying the chromatin by itself.
2: Yeah, so um credit here goes to Ali Shalataford and Kevin Struhl, who were some of the first groups to demonstrate that um, path one subunits, path one complex subunits play a role in histone modifications, and specifically their H2B. K123 monoubiquitination; it's K120 in humans, um, and that is a that is modification that I think of as lying as to- at the top of a cascade. So when you get monoubiquitination of H2B, um, that allows the activation of SET1 and DOT1 methyltransferases that modify K4 and K79. So um, for us, we're very excited about H2B ubiquitination because we. We think of it as at the top of the cascade that initiates a huge number of epigenetic marks downstream leading into acetylation as well. Um, So knowing that mutations in PATH1 complex subunits played a role in this, we set out to figure out mechanistically um, various things. We wanted to know which subunit was most involved in that modification we're still actively trying to understand sort of the importance of that modification um, other than its roles in K4 and K79 methylation. Um, but I also want to point out that the complex is important for another modification pathway, with, which is H3K36 trimethylation, a modification that is often found sort of more shifted to the three prime ends and gene bodies.
1: So it's, but, it's also, uh, but it's also like in gene bodies, not like like other marks would be at promoters or enhancers, but this is really a mark for gene bodies, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think of the path one complex uh, as being a regulator to make sure that some of the epigenetic modifications are happening on gene bodies. um, and then the consequences of those modifications on transcription um are important. um there's there's many instances of, when you mutate those pathways, you get cryptic initiation, for example. Um, there might be defects in elongation. Um, so understanding the patterning and how that imposes new levels of regulation is something we're really interested in. So there's, there's two sides there. There's So there's this lysine you know, K36 trimethylation side that I think we and others still don't quite understand how the PATH-1 complex may be um, playing a direct role in that, and even if it does. H2B mono I feel um, for more confident in saying that this is a this is a very direct readout of PATH-1 complex function.
1: So but this ubiquitination will not lead will not lead to the degradation of histones right but it's just like a another um, signaling mark or or mark that will lead to further downstream consequences and not to the degradation of of, of histones right
2: That's correct it's a mono um, it's not a polyubiquitination, which is oh, so. More that's
1: the difference, then.
2: Yeah, that's a key difference. Yeah, you know, the polyubiquitination, of course, leads to proteasome-dependent degradation, um, and the, in this case, the mono does the ubiquitin does not lead to destruction. It's a it's a rather dramatic epigenetic modification to impose on a. A nucleosome, right? You're adding about 76 amino acids of ubiquitin onto a histone that's maybe like 135 or something. It's a quite dramatic modification to make, and um, a lot of investigators, including structural biologists, have have investigated you know, what what is the impact of that on the nucleosome. Um, and, and there's been some very nice studies that suggested it, it, you know, that it it can play roles in affecting chromatin compaction. Um, and nucleosome stability in general um, seems to be sort of higher when the, the when H2B is ubiquitinated. Um, so um, you know, there's single molecule work on this. There's chromatin IP experiments. Um, so it imposes pose some, some effect on nucleosome structure for sure. Um, in addition to the fact it is going to lead to the recruitment of these methyltransferases.
1: So we already talked about RTF1 uh, being part of the puf one complex. And what you looked at was um, that RTF1 might be the subunit that recruits puf one to active genes. Um, so what did you do there and what were the results in the end? I mean, I just maybe <laughs> said what the results were, but maybe you can <laughs> talk about it well, more.
2: Well, you know, yeah. we started with our genetics, right? Um, and um, we, we mutagenized We have mutagenized other subunits as well, but RTF1 has been more forgiving in terms of us being able to make mutations throughout it um, without completely wiping out all function. So we've identified, you know, just using genetics, you know, sort of four kind of interesting domains just in RTF1 alone. Um, and one of them is a domain that we we dubbed the histone modification domain, and, and that's because mutations in it lead to a complete loss of H2B uh, ubiquitination, and then the downstream marks, K4 and K79 methylation, are gone as well. So mutations in this domain that's about, you know, genetically we defined it at, at around 66 amino acids. Um Wipe out that. And and then, you know, the sort of shocking thing that we discovered, I think, was that if we just express those 66 amino acids in a yeast cell that lacks the rest of RTF1, and in fact, we made a quintuple deletion of lacking the entire PATH complex, if we just provide those 66 amino acids back on a plasmid, we recover all of these histone modifications and I, I, today that's an experiment that surprises me in some ways, but it also tells me as sort of a biochemist at heart that I think that this domain is actually playing a more direct role in, in the modification pathway than might be argued by something more general like a recruitment pathway that maybe it's bringing in um, – RAD6 and BREE1 are the ubiquitin conjugase and ligase to put the, the ubiquitin on H2B. And somebody needs to bring those onto gene bodies. And I think the PATH complex is going to play a role in that. But just the fact that we can take this domain and recover these marks um, suggests to me a more active role.
1: Yeah, it makes <laughs> it makes you feel like that that the other four uh, parts of the PATH1 complex are maybe not so
2: important. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a really good point. I think they really are important. I mean... Um, I mean, beautiful structure work coming from Patrick Kramer and others have, you know, have shown how the complex is sort of draped over the polymerase. Um, I can tell you if you delete the PATH1 or CTR9 subunits from yeast, that is the most detrimental effect that we see on the on sort of just the health of the cells. Um, I think of them as a bit of a structural core, um, maybe holding everybody together, including RTF1. Um, so I, I wouldn't go so far as to say the rest of the subunits aren't important. Um, and we're trying to get at that, actually, by um, one of my current students is investigating how we, um, you know, what happens when we acutely deplete each one of those individual subunits and what's the impact on the on the transcriptome Um
1: Yeah, maybe we can postpone this this topic for maybe in five more minutes because I'm coming to that.
2: (laughs) Oh, sure, absolutely. I'm just letting I'm getting back to the idea that I don't discount everybody in the complex.
1: (laughs) So more recently, you investigated the extent to which the functions of Puff1C combine to regulate the Saccharomyces cerevisiae transcriptome. Um, Can you maybe talk about this a a bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, so that was yeah. So there have been several papers before that you know you know, knocked out or even sort of conditionally depleted over a longer time course, um, and then analyzed the transcriptome by RNA sequencing. And so, um, you know, what's clear, I think, to everyone now is doing those kinds of experiments has been incredibly informative, but it gives you a complex readout, right? So you have you're getting a look at steady-state RNA that's both transcribed and processed. You're getting the look of cells that have lived their lives, um, you know, in a null condition. You know, there's no factor there ever. And so it's a little it was a little unclear to us what extent the transcriptome was impacted. And so um, one of the earlier studies we did um, on this and, you know, published it a few years ago now was... Um, to delete PATH1 in a context where we could stabilize the non-coding RNAs in the cell. And using those methods, um, it was actually a high-resolution tiling array experiment, but we could have done RNA sequencing and gotten sort of the same result. What we see is a large impact of the PATH complex on non-coding transcription um, when you can stabilize those RNAs. And we did that by mutating um, a factor that's normally involved in, in the pathway to destroying unstable RNAs.
1: Um and what were yeah the maybe the, the summary of the results
2: yeah I mean so when we look at transcription that way, I would say the levels of transcripts, we see that um path one delete cells lead to both up regulation and down regulation um of a lot of genes at steady state. We saw um and something we had reported actually quite a few years ago is extension of non-coding RNAs at the three prime ends, particularly. Um, some of the snow RNAs, snow RNAs are terminated in yeast by a different um, termination pathway. So not the standard cleavage polyadenylation pathway. Um, this is called the nerd one nab 3 sen one nns pathway. That um, termination pathway um, takes care of some of the small non-coding transcripts and also cryptic unstable transcripts in yeast. And, and there is, through some mechanism, the PATH1 complex... Um, is required to make sure that that termination pathway for short non-coding RNAs happens correctly. So we would see what we saw in those data, a read-through of non-coding RNAs, um, extensive upregulation of things that are normally um, destroyed by um, the RNA exosome, such as cryptic unstable transcripts. So all of those sort of non-coding events were What we saw was a general buildup of some of those RNAs in in cells that lack the Paphlon complex. Um, Mechanistically, exactly how that is happening is something that we're still curious about. Um, But yeah, that's sort of one of the main conclusions Mm. from that work.
1: So, one um, important part of the nucleosome is the acidic patch. Um, and you also looked at this uh, and how this influences transcription factor binding activity in vivo. And of course, this was done on the example of PATH1. Um, so what did you find there?
2: Yeah, so our interest in the nucleosome acidic patch, you know, began a little bit agnostically. So we, one of the questions we wanted to know, it occurred to us that we know not as much about how the nucleosome Is playing a role in epigenetic processes as some of the factors that engage the nucleosome. So, um, armed with our genetic tools, and in particular, really powerful histone mutant library generated by Ali Shalotiford's group. Um, So, what we have in the lab, thanks to the Shalotiford lab, is all of the four core histones mutated at every location um, to an alanine. And so, those are all expressed on plasmids. And so, we use that toolkit to specifically screen for histone mutants that might be defective in histone H2B um, K123 ubiquitilation. We had a genetic interaction that we used to simplify that screen, but at the end of the day, the point was to get histone mutants that could not properly carry out H2B ubiquitilation and we landed there on um, a cluster of residues around the nucleosome acidic patch. So that told us that the acidic patch was in some way um, positively influencing ubiquitylation, um, and so we sort of began from there and characterized those mutants um, For their modification levels, um, sometimes a little bit of their transcription properties. um, And it led to this really kind of fascinating idea that the acidic patch um, is not only a hub, it's a hub for many factors we all now know, but also for some that are depositing um, ubiquitin on H2B and also actually for removing it. We had um, some indications from that work that the ubiquitin proteases um, were uh, sensing the acidic patch as well. So that's how we began on the acidic patch.
1: So that's a very busy site of the nucleosome, right?
2: Exactly. There's a lot of structural biology out there that, that shows many proteins using that acidic patch as a hub. Yeah.
1: So finally, um, you looked at also transcriptional termination and how the nucleosome DNA entry site uh, influences that process. Um, so what did you find out about transcriptional termination?
2: Right, so this is sort of, you know, getting back to this wonderful histone mutant library and our um, feeling that, you know, what do we really know about how the nucleosome is is regulating other stages in transcription? You know, I, I was interested in termination for some time because of my PhD work. And so we thought, well, let's do a unbiased genetic screen of the histone mutant libraries, looking for mutants that um, lead to expression of a reporter gene. Um, positioned downstream of a terminator. So um, in this way, we got um, we screened the histone H3H4 libraries in this case. Um, for technical reasons, we focused on those, and we identified um, a group of H3 mutants that led to upregulation of a reporter gene positioned downstream of a PULT2 terminator. And those mutants in this case I think we were expecting them to map to the acidic patch <laughs> in some way. Well, of course, the acidic patch is composed of H2H2b, but we were, um, you know, we were a bit surprised. We landed on other section of the nucleosome, which was the DNA entry exit site, um, which is, you know, a part of the nucleosome, where, as its name implies, the DNA enters and then exits as it comes around the nucleosome. Um, and all of the mutants clustered there. We went back to the H2H2b library and... and strategically tested some of those and um, found H2A mutants uh, also that the near the entry-exit site that derailed um, termination.
1: So it really seems like, uh, before we go, or before we look into the future, it really seems like um, you were able to profit and to use a lot of tools that you produced along the way, right? You have those libraries, you have the genetic tools, even though, um technology advanced and all the sequencing came around along the along the years. Um, but it really seems like um the tools that you once set up are really helpful along the way and and really um help you yeah profit from them for a long time.
2: Yeah, I I, I feel like the tools that I developed through my training. I, I want to give you know credit to my mentors, Mike Chamberlain and Fred Winston, you know, for providing training in the hardcore aspects of biochemistry and the you know, the the hardcore aspects of genetics, because those are the tools that I've brought with me, you know, as the tools all change, you know, as the kits change, and the, you know, and the methods all change. I mean, I think, I guess my message to trainees would be, you know, think about, think about your mentors, think about the training that's going to be more not on the techniques, but more on the thinking. So um, I've tried, I try hard to accommodate both of those lines in my research. Um, I, like I said, I want to give a lot of credit to my colleagues out there who um, have generated incredible um, libraries and, you know, histo-mutant libraries from Ali and others that have been very useful. Um, we have, of course, because we must, taken on the genomics as well um, in our more recent work. So it's good, to, I think, to try to do all things. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: so, one thing I'm always interested in is, uh, what are you working on right now? What can you share, and what are your plans, let's say, for the next five years?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to share with what we're working on right now. So, um, you know, with respect to the histone modification domain of r t f one we're still really fascinating about fascinated by you know how this little tiny domain plays such an active role. And what I didn't add before is, um, we can add that small protein, a slightly larger version, actually, to an in vitro recombinant reaction and stimulate H2B ubiquitination with totally recombinant, you know, E2 and E3 and nucleosome, et cetera. So it's playing some very direct role. And so what we've figured out through, um, we like to use um, site-specific cross-linking ex- uh, technology, first developed by Peter Schultz, where we use expansion of the genetic code to introduce unnatural amino acids into proteins. Um, We do that in vivo. um, And then sometimes we work with cross-linking of cells. Sometimes we purify proteins and do cross-linking in vitro. But using strategically introduced site-specific cross-linkers, we can identify direct protein-protein interactions. And in that way, we've found that this domain in the RTF1 subunit is in direct physical contact with RAD6, which is the E2. I think that's interesting because there aren't that many E2s in yeast. And so they partner with many E3s and that's where the specificity lies. So here we have a transcription factor directly in contact with a limited, um, with one of a limited number of E2s. And so that's what we're working on right now is we're trying to understand how that interaction is happening on the other side. We know the amino acids on the RTF1 side that are engaged. And now we've actually recently introduced or figured out where on RAD6 the contact is taking place. So a very specific mutants. Um, and what's really cool about those mutants in RAD6 is they seem to be very selective for chromatin modification and not so much for some of the other functions that RAD6 carries out in the cell, like DNA damage repair. So that's one thing we're doing. The other thing, um, main project, I guess, in the lab is as I alluded to before, is to you know, figure out what all these subunits are doing. And and you know, looking at null alleles is complicated because the cells, as I like to say, have lived their lives without, so there's they've adapted. Um, and so what we've been doing, as many other labs have been doing, is acute depletion of our favorite factors, in this case, all five subunits of the pathlung complex, and then using. Metabolically labeling of RNA, we can look at newly made transcripts, and we can compare those transcription profiles to steady-state transcription profiles, and um, sort of taking a very holistic approach um, to to understand um, the direct and also the indirect effects of this complex. Because some of the indirect effects are interesting. I mean, I think I think H3K36 trimethylation could come into the in, into the world where um, we don't see an a defect in that modification if we acutely deplete path one, but we see it when we have a path one null. And so why is that? You know, w- what is it that's taking so long for that mark to either dissipate or or get established? Um, these are things we're really interested in from sort of a holistic view. Um, so those are sort of sort of main two projects in the lab right now. And of course, we're also really interested in um the interplay between histone modifications. Um, H2B ubiquitination being a primary one, we've done um, and we are doing genetic screens, unbiased screens to ask, you know, how do cells, how do cells accommodate the loss of that modification? If we mutate other epigenetic marks, do we see um, increased problems or decreased problems on the transcriptome? So we're very interested in this sort of interplay of epigenetic pathways.
1: So to finish, I, I mean it will be very interesting to see <laughs> and uh, wh- what is coming out and what the results of those uh, projects are. But um, to finish off this uh, interview, I have two more general questions. And the first one: Did you at one point of your career face a situation that you have reached a dead end, or did not did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer?
2: Um, that's a really hard question. Um, have I reached a dead end on any project? Um, I certainly have changed direction. Um, you know, when I began my lab, I while I might be best known for the PATH1 complex, I was working almost fully on Tata binding protein and other mutants that um, have a variety of very interesting phenotypes. And for a while, that led us down to Um, The SNF-1 protein kinase, which is involved in phosphorylating proteins in response to carbon source. Um, And so I'm quite interested, actually, in metabolism and how that might impact chromatin. I think a lot of people are fascinated by that. So I think I took a transition there, and then I could have spent a lot more time going down the, that pathway. Um, but when we landed on this sort of novel elongation complex of the Path 1 complex, I, made, I, I sort of made a conscious decision to switch more into that direction. Um, my lab is limited in size, and so I have to make, have to make decisions.
1: So in the last uh, thirty-seven minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give us a short summary about m- maybe your most important finding or something that we might have missed in this interview?
2: I think I think our most important finding really is um, being at the early stages of of helping to discover and char- characterize this path one complex. Um, I uh, shout out to Judith Janing, who really was the first to identify um, half one and name it as a polymerase-associated factor. But I think our most important work has related to showing that that complex, first off, is important for elongation, um, as our very early genetic screens has shown, uh, and then giving us some or sort of more detailed mechanistic insight as to its functions in a really important set of histone modifications. Um, Those modifications have important roles in human health and development. And so I think it's really important that we continue to think mechanistically um, uh, in parallel with the more, I would say, large-scale, genomic-scale work that we do.
1: Yeah, thank you, Karen, for your time and for being on the show.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it you can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.